Trooper Alpha and Tiwana Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraph Study. My guest on this edition of Fangraph Study making his weekly Monday appearance on a Thursday. It's his weekly Monday appearance, except it occurs on a Thursday. Managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. What follows as he does uh, every week, Dave Cameron endeavors on this edition of the program to analyze all baseball of particular note this week. And I should say, this is going to be the briefest introduction you've heard so far. It's going to be the briefest introduction of particular note this week. Dave Cameron analyzes all of the postseason to date, which includes the two wild card games. And that's it. And then uh, previews a couple of them. So you have a look first at the National League wild card play-in game featuring the Chicago Cubs and Pittsburgh Pirates. And then right after that, we we uh, examine the American League wildcard playing game featuring Houston Astros and New York Yankees. It is 30-odd minutes of conversation dedicated to those things. And then a bit uh, a bit of time added by way of previewing the, the various divisional series. And, of course, it is not uh, without moments of candor, uh, courtesy Dave Cameron, who's exhibited here. One or both of us need to go away. We're going to get to that conversation momentarily. Allow me to offer a brief word from our sponsor. The sponsor is Draft, the Draft app. If you're familiar with any daily fantasy game, then you're familiar at some level with Draft, with the exception that Draft is designed uh, for mobile devices exclusively and is unique in that way. After you've opened Draft, all you need to do is to find an opponent within the Draft universe, either someone you already know or a stranger. You challenge them, you conduct a snake draft, each selecting five players, those players accrue fantasy points. You find who wins. Are you confident in your choices? You can wager American currency. This is a thing you can do. How do you get this app? You are definitely asking. If you have uh, some manner of iOS device, you can go to the App Store. If you have some sort of Android device, please consider going to Google Play. That's where you can get it. Furthermore, there is a smart link. If you can navigate your web browser to the post at which this edition of the podcast appears. Navigate your web browser there. There is a smart link that will take you to the relevant destination. And that is it. That is the sponsor. It is Draft. Draft. You could download that. I've already also told you. I've, so now I've told you about Draft. I've already also told you about the guest who is Dave Cameron. What is it, Fangraphs Audio? Who does it feature? That same managing editor, Dave Cameron. When does it begin? Right now. Good, how are you? Good. Good, good, good. 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 That's a lot of goods. I'm glad we've established some of these things. Yeah. Are you doing as good as Jake Arrieta today? Uh, well, I can't speak to his experience of the world, but... Um, I mean, he might have, a, like, a massive hangover this morning, so we might be doing better than him. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I did. I did not know until, um, until midway through the game yesterday that he had actually... Uh, submitted by way of uh, social media platform Twitter, a um, a sort of um, um, a comment uh, addressed towards the Pittsburgh Pirates and their fans. What he is, is yeah, he's an outspoken dude. Yeah, but um, he he supported. He, he, it was not mere. What we call that? It was not mere. Uh, I was going to say flamboyance, but it's not. It's not what Posting? I mean. Yeah, I mean, he was he backed it up, is the point. He yeah. supported his assertion that he would do a good job. He made a claim, and then he and then he staked his claim. Yeah, he provided uh, supporting evidence Yeah, in the form of, what, 11 strikeouts, no walks? 
Yeah, he did hit two guys, so that's like the one people are like, oh man, it's a no walk performance. I'm like, yeah, well, he beamed a couple guys, but yeah, yeah right. <laughs> Eleven strikeouts, shutout, you know, nine shutout innings. This is pretty good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's good. He uh, uh when did that? The, all right, I'm going to ask you some very naive questions during the course of this edition of the program. When did that happen for Jake Arrieta? Because he, at one point he was a Baltimore Oriole, and I know yeah. at some point before that uh, he was an he was a college pitcher. Uh, I know that Tony Blangino, of course, who, who writes for Fangraphs and uh, was formerly a scout for a couple of different major league teams, or worked in a in a capacity in baseball ops for a couple of teams. Uh, he saw Arietta pitch in the Cape League and said that his main virtues, or thought at that time that his main virtues were uh, main virtue was pitchability over stuff. Right, and now the stuff is pretty, pretty good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, he, that, again, I've, I think I've said it before, but that cutter at 90 to 92 or whatever, that's, it's, it's just unfair, yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Yeah, and his breaking ball's good, and he throws a 96 mile an hour sinker. So, you know, it's not just, the, the cutter is awesome, but the, the other stuff's good. Right, and of course, and then, uh, he does appear to have the command to, to yeah, right. All yeah, well. right. He doesn't right. walk anybody, and he pounds the bottom of the zone and gets ground ball. I mean, he, he's just like, you know, uh, as close to any, as, you know, Clayton Kershaw's been the best pitcher in baseball for four years now. I don't think anyone has challenged Kershaw for that title in oh, four years, basically. Mm-hmm. This might be as close as anyone's gotten. Like, uh, Arietta might not be the best pitcher on the planet right now, but he's really close. So when did, when did it happen? Just- uh, basically after he got to Chicago. I mean, so there were, there were signs in Baltimore that he was better than they, uh, than his results. I mean, he was one of these guys who like posted a very high BABIP and underperformed his peripherals in his couple of years in Baltimore. So when the Cubs traded for him, it was kind of like, yeah, this is exactly what the Cubs do. They find guys with bad results, but good peripherals and say, you know, maybe there's some undervalued talent here. Uh, but I, I mean, they weren't expecting this. Certainly, <laughs> I don't think anyone should have been expecting this. Uh, so it seems like after he got to Chicago, uh, Chris Bazio worked with him and, uh, uh, we can't say causation necessarily, but somewhere along the lines after becoming a Cub, he figured out how to both throw strikes and miss bats and get ground balls. Mm-hmm. And Which are is, good things to do. These sorts of dramatic improvements where yeah. uh, players sort of um, be, uh, reach a new level, this, is, this seems to me more the province of, of pitchers than hitters. Is that true? Yes, it seems to be... Much easier to take a huge step forward as a pitcher. Right. And also, I guess you could say a much uh, a bigger step back, too, because of the threat right. of injury. Yep. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Okay. All right. So Arietta did that. Um, uh, as you noted, though, in a, a piece that was published over at um, uh, Jabo today. J- yeah, just, just, a, a, just a bit outside. Just a bit Which, outside. Jake Arietta, not, not too many pitches that were just a bit outside. No, no he did not throw too many. Uh, the, the, the Pirates did have one... Opportunity. What was it? Bases loaded, one out. Yeah, Bases and loaded. the one out came on a rocket. <laughs> right, and that was a and and, and it should be said. Uh, Chris Bryant had a number of at least three of these plays during the game, were, yeah. were just like exclusive. They're like real reflex plays, and he and he uh, executed them all admirably. Not bad for a guy who started the game in the outfield. That's also true. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Uh, wait, how did that shift around? Because what, Lestella was somewhere? Yeah, around? Tommy Lestella started at third base and then, uh, they, they made some moves and switched everything around for defensive purposes and got Bryant back on the infield. And he made, right, and so he, he made all those plays, of course, after, yeah. after that had yeah. happened, that move had yeah. happened. Um, yeah, so well done there. Um, the, the interesting point you brought up, 
I think was, uh, and of course this is something that would not have even been possible last year, uh, you cited uh, exit velocity, batted ball exit velocity. Um, I did. Of, of the, the batted balls, uh, because it, just watching watching the game, you said, well, the Pirates, um, they're having some success this inning. Even when they're recording outs where the ball is getting hit towards the player, it's getting hit very hard. And it turns out, was it four consecutive batted balls of, of 100 miles per hour or harder? Yeah, I think uh, Darren Woolman, who runs Baseball Savant, I think tweeted out at some point uh, that Arietta had only allowed like 12 batted balls 100 miles an hour the entire season, and then he allowed four in a row in the same inning, and yet still somehow didn't give up any runs in the inning in which every guy who hit the ball hit it at least 101 miles an hour. Like, the base hit from Travis Snyder was the weakest hit of the, of the whole inning, and then after that, it was three missiles that were hit even harder than the base hit, but they all just went right at uh, Cubs infielder. So it was like uh, two basically rockets right at Addison Russell, one of which was the inning-ending double play, and then the Polanco's line drive uh, that Chris Bryant turned into a circus catch. Right, and and you mentioned uh, so the, in the last out was was Marte Marte grounding into a double play, right? Yeah, I mean, gra- so right, grounding into a double play gives like the impression of like, oh, you know, he hit like a seven chopper or something, or he hit a, you know, he he screwed up somehow. Uh, right. Marte hit a ball. Uh, you know, as hard as you can hit a ball. He just didn't get under it. And I think that was kind of the, this is actually kind of an instructive inning in the sense of like, uh, I think, uh, what the batting average on balls hit over 100 miles an hour is like 650 or 700 or something like that, right? So these are usually hits, but that, because, that's because most balls that are hit this hard are elevated, right? So if you hit down on the ball and you hit it really hard, you're basically, uh, uh, you made an automatic out if you hit it at someone because there's no chance you're going to beat out the throw uh, as long as they, you know, can play the ball. Uh, you know, McCutcheon hit it so hard that, that Russell had trouble feeling the first one, so he did reach on an air. Um, but unless you, like, elevate the ball, uh, it's not necessarily as productive. So it's not one of those things where we say, like, oh, man, you know, the, the Pirates were remarkably unlucky. I think they were in a sense, but also there was something to the fact that they didn't, managed to get the ball in the air, and that's one of the things that Jake Arrieta has done really well this year is uh, ground balls upon ground balls upon ground balls. So even when he's giving up lasers, uh, they were still lasers to infielders. Right, and this is this enters the world of uh, contact management, I guess, right, where you have multiple variables to consider. Tony Bongino has written a number of articles for the site uh, along these lines, but it's still something uh, – It's I, I think it's still a bit of a m- mysterious territory because – um, we don't necessarily have a lot of um, benchmarks for this sort of thing. You mentioned the 100 mile per hour threshold, um, b- but you know I think it's still something that even for those of us who are interested in um, analytics, we don't necessarily have you know uh, you know you know that like a uh, you know a strikeout rate you know above 20 percent or 25 percent has some significance to you. You've seen this a number of times. But a, a, a pitcher's ability to manage the velocity of the contact or the – in conjunction with the batted ball types, this is something that for me I know I, I have difficulty uh, sort of triangulating this information and digesting it to come to some uh, sort of a, a conclusion that I – you know, that relates to something I've seen before. Yeah, I think the key is we don't have context, right? So that's like what's really missing is at least like with the strikeout rates or, you know, numbers that you're familiar with, we kind of know what the league average is. We kind of know uh, the range of like good to bad. 
uh, with kind of those new StatCast numbers, we only have, you know, parts of one year of data and an incomplete data set at that. So we don't really know, like, how often are 109 mile an hour ground balls turned into double plays, right? Like, we would assume it's probably not that high. Uh, you'd think 109 more, even on the ground, more often than not it's gonna get through, because unless it's really just hit right at the fielder, they're not gonna have time to react and get to it, and you know, you can't take three steps to get to a 109 mile or ground ball before it's up the middle or through a hole. Uh, but we don't, we don't necessarily know, right? We can't speak with such, such confidence and be like, oh man, the pirates, you know, based on, uh, the velocity of the balls they were hitting in that inning should have gotten, you know, three extra base hits and, you know, uh, had an expected score rate of 2.4 runs. We, do, you know, we don't know. We think, like, watching the inning that, uh, the, you know, sucks for the Pirates to hit the ball that hard and have them all go right at fielders, but we don't know how much of that was Jake Arrieta's command getting them to pitch down, kind of getting them to hit down and not get under the ball, and we can't necessarily say with any kind of confidence uh, how much of that was unfortunate luck for the Pirates versus just good pitching by Arietta? Right. It doesn't seem like you'd want, <laughs> from a pitcher, you wouldn't want him depending on uh, an ability somehow to allow uh, hu- massive contact but <laughs> having it always be on the ground. It seems like that would that would come back to... to so uh, I think, like, I will say that as far as uh, pitching skills go, giving up rockets at your fielders seems to not be one, and I would bet that there's probably no predictability in, like... I mean, people like to talk about weak, generating weak contact, which is a thing uh, that pitchers can do to some degree. I don't think generating hard contact at the right spray angle is a thing. I mean, maybe we'll find out in 20 years that, like, some guys really know how to give up line drives at their defenders. But my guess is uh, Jake Arrieta got pretty fortunate in the sixth inning last night. Right, and that and that's possible, possibly uh, the, the most vulnerable we've seen. Uh, we've seen Arietta what, in, you know, I mean, perhaps in the whole second half. Is that possible? Does that, I mean, is that, is that a, a fair comment? Yeah, I think, I mean, this is a guy who's given up, what, four runs and 12 starts? So, you know, like, uh, he, had, he had a chance to give up four runs in one swing if Marte would have been able to get under the ball. Uh, this is not a common occurrence in the second half. I mean, I think, uh, Jason Stark said the last time on, uh, the last time anyone beat Jake Arrieta, it took Cole Hamels throwing a no-hitter. <laughs> so that's basically the bar if you want to beat this guy. Uh, just don't give up any hits. Right. And, uh, it should be said, so, uh, actually, uh, just this morning, uh, August Fagerstrom in his second post back. Uh, yes, second welcome post, back, August Fagerstrom. Yeah, returned to the, to the site. Um, he picked up uh, off a similar line of inquiry that he had started um, with Dallas Keuchel yesterday, and maybe we can we can revisit that soon. But um, it it concerns as sort of a proxy, and I know that Jeff Sullivan has has attempted sort of. Um, has attempted posts along this line too, but looking essentially f- uh, at proxies for command, right? Right. And uh, Fagerstrom, what, what what he used was, um, and uh, it's revealing in both cases, both with regard to Cole and and Keuchel, But uh, we're talking about Cole at the moment. Uh, the the heart the heart versus the edge uh, percentages um, developed by what, Bill Petty and Jeff Zimmerman, right? Right. Yeah, and. Yesterday, and this again, this is a, in theory, it's a proxy for command. Um, last night during his start, uh, I think it was roughly 37% of Cole's fastballs were over the heart of the plate. Right. That was the highest rate that he had uh, produced all season. Yeah. So, and, and that, that bad timing, I guess you'd say. 
Yeah, I mean, I think we saw, what, the Dexter Fowler and Kyle Schwarber home runs. Uh, those guys are, you know, they're good hitters, but those were bad pitches. Uh, and, you know, not a great time for Garrett Cole to throw two pretty bad pitches. Right, and um, I guess, and, and I think that another thing that figures should point out, it wasn't necessarily that Cole was punished on every one of those pitches down the middle, but maybe that it's more illustrative that he lacked a command. He also cited a comment that uh, Jessica Mendoza had made during the the broadcast of the uh, Astros Yankees game where you have this this non-competitive pitch, right? right? Which is a pitch that as a pitcher maybe you have a, the account in your favor, you want to throw something that's tempting uh, but would not put you in a dangerous spot. And those those are important pitches and I think that it's not they're sort of hard always to uh, to identify in sort of an objective sense when you're, you know, conducting a study looking back, but you you sort of know it when you see it. Yeah, I mean, I think this is probably the trickiest thing about evaluating pitching is so much of what we do in our evaluation, like even me calling those two pitches that Cole threw to Schwarber and Fowler, I'm identifying those as bad pitches because they were hit for home runs, right? So like the variable is the hitter's ability and what they did impacts our perception to a very large degree of the quality of the pitch and what that person did. So if, say, Kyle Schwarber was just uh, you know, having a freak out of his own and was like, man, I'm in the, I'm in the playoffs and it got really nervous and didn't swing. We probably wouldn't perceive what Garrett Cole threw as a bad pitch. We might just be like, oh yeah, he fooled him, right? Like he, <laughs> he, he deceived him in some way that he wasn't ready for a middle, middle fastball. Right. Uh, and that's how, well, Keuchel ended his appearance, right? On a right. middle, middle fastball to yeah. Alex Rodriguez. And that, that was one of the things like even August said in his post, like, uh, I think after the game, Keuchel made some comment about, uh, yeah, you know, I saw him, you know, hit that fly ball to Springer earlier in the game and I thought if I could, you know, went up in the zone, I could get him to go, get under one and pop it up. And so people were like, man, what a brilliant plan by Dallas <laughs> No, I don't think this was a brilliant, I mean, like maybe his idea was good, but his execution wasn't very good because he threw Alex Rodriguez a cookie and A-Rod missed it. And so, uh, you know, Keuchel is celebrated as like this hero, but that ball very easily could have been hit into the seats and the Astros could have lost. And um, our our understanding of how, Jay Gary, or how Garrett Cole and Dallas Keuchel pitched is essentially based on the success or failure of Alex Rodriguez versus like Kyle Schwarber hitting a mistake. One did, one didn't, and our our entire perception of how those two pitched is colored by what the hitter did. Right, and and, and a lot of times, and of course, uh, big leaguers punish mistakes frequently, but uh, also, you know, not always. I, yeah. Not always, right? And that's and that's the sort of thing you see in a, in when one game uh, is the is the thing which you're playing, then the you're going to get even wider variation. Yeah. Um, uh, right. So so that was difficult. Now, were you surprised that you uh, have mentioned this? Well, of course, you wrote a post, I think, last week. You said the uh, the AL, or maybe it was earlier this week, the AL wild card game ought to be a bullpen affair. That's uh, yes, my, my annual plea. I do, right, the, I exactly. do the same post every year. If, you, if there were a president, I think, if there were a presidential candidate running on, his main point in his platform was that bullpens should be integrated earlier in one game playoffs, that would be your guy regardless of his other issues. I would uh, be his campaign manager and maybe his VP. Yeah. yeah. The well, if he allowed you, Cameron, I, I don't well, know. Well, I think I think if that's his main platform, I'm the obvious choice. Okay. the The point is, uh, regardless of whether that was the case in the AL game, um, it's you. You always your your the idea is you have uh, quite a bit of talent back there in the bullpen. In the sense that these guys are, you know, if you could, you can um, manipulate the 
the platoon advantages. Uh, you don't have to worry about a guy going the second or third time through a lineup. Were you, were you surprised? Were you advocating strongly for Cole to be removed? Because it should be noted that the way he was allowing home runs or was allowing runs was just on home runs, basically. Yeah. So I think, uh, so I wrote the post specifically about the AL because I think the case was stronger to be made that like Keiko was going on three days rest. Um, you know, the Astros probably, uh, had a smaller margin of error given that they didn't, they didn't know what Keiko was going to be. I mean, they can say like, we, we trust this guy and we think he's built for pitching in short rest and he thinks that it's all fine to say, but there's more uncertainty when a guy's pitching on third, three days of rest for the first day of his career. Like you don't have the same, you shouldn't have the same level of confidence in, in Dallas Keiko on three days of rest as the Pirates had in Garrett Cole on four. So I would say with the Astros, there was more reason to go to the bullpen early. Um, but I do think when you're facing a guy like Jake Arrieta, you have to understand that you're, like, you're might, probably not going to score more than two or three runs, right? So like you can't really afford to get yourself into a hole. And I think if Cole would have been like walking a lot of guys and giving up you know, kind of a sustained rallies. Yeah, you go to the bullpen. But, you know, when you give up a solo homer and a two-run homer, uh, I don't know how you avoid that, right? <laughs> like, in neither of those situations was it really obvious that, like, he was about to do what he did. And I don't know that it was preventable ahead of time. He just threw two bad pitches that got hit over the fence. So um, could the Pirates have gone to the bullpen earlier? Maybe. Would it have made a difference? Probably not. Do you think that there um, – could there possibly be a correlation between those situations in which – uh, a pitcher is conceding or is is offering more pitches is is producing a higher uh, heart percentage right more fastballs down the middle and the likelihood of home run home run con- allowance uh, so I would imagine there is. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it makes intuitive sense that more pitches in the middle of the plate are going to lead to more home runs, but we don't know how predictive this is, right? Like, if you have a very high percentage of pitches down the middle early in the game, does that mean anything for what you're going to do later, or are you going to make an adjustment? Like, we we don't know. And I would assume that, like, uh, based on some other things that have been studied and kind of how unpredictive early performance can be, I would bet that early heart percentage probably doesn't predict later heart percentage, where maybe you're struggling with your command in the first inning, but doesn't mean you're going to struggle with your command for the whole game. Right. Uh, so I think when you have a pitcher of Garrett Cole's quality, he really is you know, one of the five or six best pitchers in the National League. You don't want to just say, well, he's throwing too many pitches in the heart of the plate in the first inning. Let's go take him out. And I guess you would also have to, if you were going to be a little bit more precise, right? you'd have to adjust for count, yeah? Because uh, with a, if a pitcher is b- behind a batter, he's probably more likely to throw a strike. And also, I think we've seen that umpires are more likely to call a strike. Yes, but at the same time, if you're constantly throwing pitches down the middle because you're falling behind 3-0 and on every batter, the fact that you're falling behind 3-0 and on every batter is the problem. So yeah. that at that point, you're not worried about the heart percentage. You're worried about the 3-0. I mean, uh, allow me to state that I'm embarrassed for not having considered that. I mean, perpetually embarrassed for other things, too. Let's add this on the pile. Do you want to be embarrassed about a tweet that just came through? Yeah. Okay, yeah, sure. So this is from Eddie Gabriel, who mm-hmm. who tweets that as a layman that listens to Dave Cameron, that host wastes more time on nonsense and needs to go away. I'm not <laughs> sure if he's talking about you, although he did include you in the tweet, uh, or me, but, or maybe both of us. But oh. Eddie Gabriel thinks that one or both of us need to go away. Oh, all right. So on that note, this is a good podcast. Yeah, well, I, I, we're getting to we're getting to the bottom of it. I think it's, yeah. it's fine. Uh, Gabriel, we whichever one of us you hate apologizes. Sean uh, Sean Rodriguez started the game at first base. I guess he'd been doing that a, a little bit recently. Um, some, not a yeah, lot, not a lot. 
Uh, I guess, uh, did you have any observations on the logic of that decision? And then the, perhaps the logic, uh, furthermore, um, of, uh, of uh, pulling him in favor of Pedro Alvarez. Yeah, so I thought it was actually kind of an interesting uh, dynamic of the two managers deciding on how to play offense and defense, right? So the Cubs traded uh, defense early for offense and then made the swap later. So they started Kyle Schwarber in right field. They started Chris Bryant in left field in order to get uh, you know, Tommy Ostella's contact bat in the lineup. And they said, you know what? With Arietta, we're not really that worried about outfield defense because this is a guy who strikes everybody out, and when he doesn't strike people out, he gets grounders. So we're going to put, you know, a catcher in one one corner and a third baseman in the other corner. Uh, neither guy who has a whole lot of experience in the outfield, and we're going to be fine with it. So they punted outfield defense early in the game, but then moved to a more defensive-oriented lineup halfway through. The Pirates went the exact opposite way. They started theoretically their best defensive first baseman, uh, given that Pedro Alvarez is terrible there and Ramos Ramirez has barely played first base. They didn't really have great options. Mike Morse, I mean, these are not gold glove options besides Rodriguez. So they started their best defender, but then pinch hit for him before he even had a chance to come to the plate, which was probably the plan all along, is basically get a couple of innings in the field from Rodriguez, hit him so low in the order that he never has to hit, uh, and then you're getting you're kind of maximizing Pedro Alvarez's at-bats while minimizing Pedro Alvarez's uh, chances to play behind ground ball pitcher Garrett Cole. So um, they kind of went the opposite way, where the Pirates went for defense early and offense late, the Cubs went for offense early and defense late. I don't know that it matters that much. Like, I think... Uh, there probably isn't a huge difference in which way you go about it, and I think both teams kind of planned on going offense for half the game and defense half the game, roughly, or two-thirds of the game. Um, so I don't know that it would have been a significant difference if they would have started Alvarez and then removed him for defense, but I do think there's some logic in saying, look, Cole's a ground ball pitcher, maybe we want to have the better... Uh, uh, defensive infielder behind him and then go with a worse defender later in the game when we have strikeout pitchers in the game. I mean, not the Coles are stri- not a strikeout pitcher, but, uh, different kinds of pitchers. Okay. All right. Let's, let, uh, let's move on to the, uh, to the AL wildcard playoff game. You, you hated that answer so much you're moving away from it real no, quick. No, 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 no. It was very interesting, but you know, uh, you're a person, you have obligations, Cameron. <laughs> uh, you're in your over halfway to fulfilling this one. Um, the, <clears throat> The AL uh, wildcard game, as you, we, we mentioned this before, you mentioned how uh, you think it should become a bullpen affair um, f- for a couple of reasons probably. On the Astros side, it uh, concerned the fact, it seems like most immediately, that Dallas Keuchel had, uh, was working on three days rest. It turned out uh, not really to be an issue for him. He had, what, seven strikeouts and a walk, um, and he was, quite, uh, he was quite strong the whole game. Can we do – I, I want to ask you again a naive question similar to the one that I asked you with regard to Arietta. Dallas Keuchel – at one point was, I think, at best a replacement-level starter. Yeah, um, when he came up, he was not good. He was not particularly good. He does yeah. not throw uh, – I mean, he sits at 89, typically. Yeah, I think when he came up, I remember maybe one of his first starts of his major league career, I saw him throwing 87 with this big, loopy curveball, and I was like, how did this guy get to the big leagues? Like, yes. this, is, this is the kind of guy that only a 110-loss team would even bother throwing out on the mound. Everyone should be – like, a major league team should be embarrassed to be starting this guy, and now he might win the Cy Young. So, yeah, so uh, just very briefly, uh, what, what's the arc for him to, to this point, uh, to the point where, you know, he is uh, a legitimate candidate for the Cy Young Award in the American League? Yeah, I mean, I think it basically comes down to command with all these guys, right? So like, if you're not a plus stuff guy, uh, you have to be able to locate the ball exceptionally well. And, and that's basically Keiko in a nutshell. Like he throws a very good two seam fastball, 
that gets what the more grounders than anybody else in baseball. He's like 67% ground balls uh, or 65%, something like that. So he's an extreme ground ball pitcher uh, who's mixed in a cutter and, and has learned how to miss enough bats uh, to basically keep people off because he never walks anybody. So if he's not going to put you on base and all you can really do is hit the ball on the ground, you have to string together a whole lot of singles in order to score runs off him because you're not going to get extra base hits and you're not going to get walks. So it's a, uh, you basically have to like slap your way and, and single your way uh, into sustaining a, a significant rally, and that's hard to do. And so, um, you know, Keichel's margin for error probably isn't very large. Like we've seen, like, um, in some uh, some regards, he's not that different. He's a better version of it, but not that different from, like, Doug Fister, right? So when Fister was doing really well in Detroit, he was very low walks, average strikeouts, and a lot of ground balls. And then, you know, Fister lost a couple miles an hour on his fastball because he was hurt this year, and he was terrible. And, uh, you know, it wasn't even that good last year. Uh, even though ZRA was good as peripherals went down, it's, it, these kinds of guys can certainly, um, you know, lose it pretty quickly if they if their stuff declines. And Keuchel's kind of probably about as good as a guy throwing 89 can be because his command is just that that good. Uh, is there do we, do we know anything about the the sort of specific physical traits of a pitcher who has excellent command? I, I know that uh, the you know like um, Nathaniel Stoltz and Kyle McDaniel will talk about the how you know the well, I don't know if it's called the cleanliness, but how clean the delivery is is one thing. Uh, Kyla Medina talks about head knock. I know right. Lance McCullers, uh, when he was an amateur, had a lot of head knock, which essentially, you know, a lot of head movement. Uh, do we know anything uh, about the actual, like, the fibers in the in the shoulder or the, the arm that would lead to this? Not really. I mean, so we we can basically say things like repeatable mechanics is, like, a nice code word for a guy who's going to throw strikes is he basically has the same delivery on every pitch. Uh, but then there's a guy like Bronson Arroyo who has like 75 different deliveries and arm angles and every pitch comes from a different slot and he didn't walk anybody for his entire career. Uh, so, you know, it seems like there's multiple ways to skin a cat in Major League Baseball and, you know, uh, we don't have like the, this is the way. Uh, it seems like for every pitcher there's a different way and, uh, a lot of it is probably muscle memory where the way you've done it for 20 years is the way that works for you and, you know, maybe Dallas Keuchel uh, has figured out exactly how to move his body in certain ways that his muscles remember this uh, movement and they follow along and they follow a pattern. But if you or I tried to do what Dallas Keigel did, it probably wouldn't work so well. You know, it it doesn't seem to be a mistake, um, and it's it's hard not to to think of Greg Maddox in the same way. Uh, it's hard not. It doesn't seem like a mistake that <clears throat> Keigel has uh, both this sort of uh, extraordinary command. Of his pitches and is also a decidedly above average defender. I think each of the last two seasons he's led uh, pitchers in defensive runs saved or he's been among the leaders. Of course, Greg Maddox uh, was a, had excellent command of all of his pitches and was an above average defender, I think, for, uh, to the end of his career as well. It, it seems as though it's a certain type of athleticism that would benefit you in both pursuits. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's probably a selection bias issue at play too, right? Like if you don't have top tier stuff, which is more true of Keiko than Maddox. I mean, Maddox threw 94 and, you know, Maddox had better stuff than people remember. Um, but if you don't have that kind of stuff, the only way to get to the big leagues is to be amazing at everything else, right? So if you're a lefty who throws 87 with a big looping curveball and you're a bad defensive f- fielder and you don't hold base runners and like you do all these other things poorly, you're not going to get out of double A. Uh, so, we kind of like Major League Baseball selects for uh, 
if this kind of guy got to the big leagues, he probably excels at everything that isn't throwing hard, which is why he got to the big leagues. Right. Uh, just like the, um, ju- just as was the case with, uh, uh, sorry, with the, uh, the, the Pirates, the runs the Yankees conceded, uh, well, both of them, or in, in every case it was on home runs, I believe, right? Was it, uh, Colby Rasmus and Carlos Gomez? Right. Um, it, not a lot to be done about that in terms of. Oh, there was the Jose Altuve blooper down the line. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, yes, yes, yes. It, it, but there's not really a lot to have been done about that in terms of manipulating the, uh, the pitching staff, right? Yeah, I mean, right. In none of these cases do I think we've seen a manager, like, egregiously leave his pitcher on the mound. Wait, I mean, I think you could make an argument that, like, if any manager went, stuck with his pitcher too long, it was the Cubs with Jake Arrieta, right? Like, that sixth inning, he was not very good. And, uh, you know, they allowed him to go nine, and obviously it worked out pretty well. They threw a shutout. But uh, I think, you know, the losing managers did not screw themselves over by sticking with their starting pitchers too long. We've seen that in fast postseasons, but that was not the case in either of the last two games. Okay. Uh, this Astros team, which we're discussing now, uh, they're playing tonight against the Royals, uh, your, who have uh, Jordano Ventura starting. Uh, wait, Ventura starting, um, it seems as though the Royals would have had the opportunity to align their rotation. Uh, they did. This is the alignment they chose. This is the alignment they chose. Uh, Eno Saris wrote about Ventura today. It's, uh, he, it's still, he's dropped his arm slot, but it's not necessarily, uh, the velocity or even the fastball, uh, that has, uh, allowed him to, uh, to excel in the, what, the second half or since August, the beginning of August. Uh, it's the curveball. Of course, all these things are uh, interrelated, but the curveball is the danger pitch, perhaps. Yeah, it's interesting. Like what, like two months ago, when the Royals traded for Johnny Cueto, the overwhelming uh, narrative at the time, which I agreed with, was that the Royals could not plan on going deep into the postseason with the current, their current starting rotation, and they absolutely had to get a number one starter uh, in order to kind of anchor the rest of their rotation. Uh, they traded for Johnny Cueto in part because Giordano Ventura was not having a good year, at least from a results perspective. His peripherals were fine, just the same as they were the last couple of years. Even his peripherals don't suggest that he's a number one starter. They were more, this is a good strike thrower who gets enough of strikeouts and ground balls to be a good pitcher, but not an ace. Um, and then ever since the trade, Jordano Ventura has pitched like an ace, and Johnny Cueto has not. And so now after trading for a number one starter, they've put him in the number two spot, and Cueto will go in game two, uh, and Ventura is the guy they're trusting uh, after a couple of good months. I do think that uh, it's more likely that Ventura is more of a good pitcher than a great one, and uh, this is probably a bit of an overreaction, and I wouldn't be surprised if, if Ventura didn't pitch that well today. Okay. The uh, uh, this is a team that uh, was marked whose postseason run last year was marked by an excellent bullpen. Uh, all of uh, many of them are returning. Some of the main pieces. Uh, Greg Holland will not. Uh, do you do you expect, however, their uh, their bullpen to also to help them out in this series as well? Yeah, basically you can look at it and say they traded Greg Holland for Ryan Madsen, which uh Ryan Madsen, not quite Greg Holland of last year, but not that much worse. I mean, this is, a, if it's a downgrade, it is a downgrade, but not a major one, not the kind of downgrade that you're like, well, this is going to screw the Royals' chances over. They still have Wade Davis, they still have Kelvin Herrera. That is delightful um, that Madsen's having such a good season. Madsen, you know, he's pretty nails. Yeah, he's he's uh he's turned into a very good reliever. Yeah. Or and, turn and, back into a very good reliever. And I guess what? They're able to do things with I mean, they've turned Joe Blanton into some sort of relief face. Is he on the No, that side? was that was the Pirates. Blanton was on the Royals, he was terrible. Pirate the Royals got rid of him, he went to Pittsburgh, and then uh now Pittsburgh turned him into a relief. Yeah, well face. Pittsburgh's not in the playoffs anymore. 
now. So now Joe Blanton will get to watch Ryan Madsen uh, do, <laughs> do what Joe Blanton couldn't do in Kansas City. All right, very good. Uh, let's see. Oh, yeah, and then, uh, well, Colin McHugh will start for that. I don't know. I had nothing particular to say. Colin McHugh is fine, I guess. Uh, Keiko will pitch which which game of that series then? Game three. Game three, okay. That's the one downside of, or the biggest downside of pitching your way in through the playoff game is uh, you only get one start from Keiko in the DS. Right. Uh, um, we are we're past the thirty minute mark now, so you uh, you have very little to do, left to do. But the um, Giovanni Gallardo is starting. Well, first of all, the Rangers are in the playoffs. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of people in the uh, what the Dallas Fort Worth area, um, who I think at one point, maybe with two weeks ago, uh, did not particularly care for Dave Cameron. Uh, because uh, that is still true, I think, of every Ranger fan. Right now. Yeah. <laughs> because you pointed out that uh, a lot of their success had been due to sequencing. Of course, I think from the moment you made that until the end of the season, they they acquitted themselves as one of the best team in other ways as well. Uh, no. So after the comments, I think it was like in early July or late June or something like mm-hmm. that, where I had a Twitter discussion with a couple of Ranger fans and just said, look, you know, your your team is winning games, but not in a sustainable Away, uh, you know, this probably won't last, and they didn't. They didn't really like that answer. No. And then, basically, from the moment we had that conversation over the next month, the Rangers fell apart. They went like five and nineteen or something. They were just they were dreadful, and they fell to almost last place. And they talked about selling, and uh, uh, you know, they were pretty close to at the deadline moving Giovanni Gallardo uh, in a future-oriented trade. But they won a bunch of games right before the deadline and convinced their team in order to convince the management to keep the team together. And then they had a really good. August and September, and uh, uh, you know, started scoring a lot of runs. Basically, Shinsu Chu came back to life. That was the big difference. He was atrocious in the first half, basically below replacement level, and then in the second half, he was one of the best hitters in baseball. Um, and Adrian Beltre got healthy, and you know, those two basically turned their lineup around, uh, and they started scoring a lot of runs. Uh, you know, I think even. With those guys playing well, they still weren't a great team the rest of the year, but they played better than they had, and obviously they traded for Cole Hamels, and that helped the pitching staff. Um, but I, you know, the Ranger fans are going to hate me all season. I've just accepted that. Uh, I, I will continue to maintain this is the worst team in the playoffs, and they're, you know, uh, they're not a great team. They, what is they, the uh, what is the fan base that doesn't despise you, Cameron? Do you do you have a uh, um, head? I don't know. Maybe uh, fans of My Little Pony. I don't, I don't think I've ever said anything about that show. Uh, I, I'm talking about teams, baseball teams. Oh, uh, maybe like the Winston-Salem Dash. I'm talking about anyone... Major League Baseball teams. Oh, uh, let's see. What Major League fan base doesn't hate me? Um, I don't know. Maybe the Red Sox. I said a lot of good things about Mookie Betts last year. They might be okay with me. Uh, Mookie Betts. What a pleasure, right? Yeah, he's good. He's really good. Yeah. Okay. Well, there's one fan base you have not alienated during the course of this conversation. Should we change that? No, no, no. Please, let's not. Okay. Uh, hey, next week I'm going to do uh, start the crowdsourcing. So anyone listening, uh, be prepared to uh, participate in some contract crowdsourcing. Yeah, so I was going to ask, can we crowdsource the player that you're going to forget on the crowdsourcing list? Yeah, maybe an Instagrams post along those lines. We can put up like let's let's guess which player Carson won't include when it comes to crowdsourcing because every year you forget someone. Like, yeah, I think it was Johnny like, Peralta. Johnny Peralta was a bad one. Yeah, that was like a, you know the second best defensive or the second best shortstop on the market that year. I think last uh, year I did a better job. Last year you still forgot someone, but it was not as high profile. As Johnny yeah, Peralta. it might have been. I don't know. Was it like? Uh, 
There was, was some starting pitcher who got like a three-year deal. But. Oh, yeah. I might have missed like – I feel like it may be – is Emilio Bonifacio a free agent every year? Uh, he, not this year because he got a two-year deal last winter, right? Okay. Well, maybe that's true. No, I uh, I feel like I saw his name around. Was there a vest some, – was something vesting? I, I thought he got like two years and six million or something. I could be wrong. I think he got one year four million. Okay, I think I wrote about it for the White Sox. Okay, that's possible. He might be a free agent again. He is a uh, free agent frequently. Yeah. I, well, uh, he's sort of on these fringes of like a – because he plays well, – you play a bunch of positions, right? Right. Well, it and seems it, like the uh, the pitchers are harder because uh, – uh, like so, for instance, are you planning on including Rich Hill in your free agent crowdsourcing? Yeah, I have okay, to. Okay. Right. So like that's that's the kind of guy that like if you just sort by like season stats or projections or something, you're not gonna see Rich Hill. Right. Uh but there's some of these guys who like have sneaky good seasons and you're like, Oh man, I didn't even notice in the pool of seven hundred and fifty major leaguers plus all the call ups, whatever there's like nine hundred guys who play every year, like some guy who hasn't been in the league that long, just happens to be out of service time and had a good couple of months, and then all of a sudden, like, oh, yeah, he got missed on the list. Wait, how many consecutive 10K games did he have? Three, I think. Yeah. yeah. At one point, he had, like, a 31 to 2 strikeout-to-walk ratio. <laughs> just, you know, okay. He Was he not pitching in the independent league earlier this year? He was. He was looking for jobs in the independent league, and then he went to the Red Sox minor league system for a couple starts, and then they called him up because they needed some pitching depth, and he then destroyed major league pitching. He's going to be, like, the most fascinating free agent in a long time of a guy who's, like, literally out of baseball. He's, what, 35, Mm -hmm. multiple arm surgeries. Like, so, like, this is, you know, the track record of, like, Chris Young, kind of. uh, uh, Condensed and and amplified. and then in September, where he was like the best pitcher on earth, or you know at least the non-Jake Arrieta version, anyway. Yeah, I mean, what do you, do you think that he's the sort of pitcher who would receive the widest range? I mean, only one offer ultimately matters, but would receive the the widest range of opinions from front offices. Uh, no, I mean, I think. So I think the trick with a guy like this is he's only going to sign a one-year deal. No one's giving Rich Hill multi-years, right? Unless it's like cheap multi-years, like two years and three million each or something. Um, almost certainly he's going to sign a one-year deal, and teams are going to say, let's see what he has, and let's give him a year to figure out what he is. And you know he's older too, so you're not you're not looking at like signing a guy for five years. Uh, so when it's a one-year deal, you're going to have some teams say like this gamble is worth a couple million. You may, maybe have some teams say it's worth nine or ten million. Who knows? Like I have no idea where the bidding on Rashil is going to go. Uh, I would be I would be surprised if he got less than like four, uh, just based on the fact that like uh, you know pitching is so valuable that if if you know even if you think it's only 25% likely that he's for real now. That's worth three or four million bucks just to just to try it. Right. Well, like, what, what did uh, I mean? Didn't Matt Latos get a contract when he was uh, was essentially injured? Like, obviously uh, injured. A, a lot of these guys do. Like, right. Teams keep signing Josh Johnson every year. Like Josh Johnson gets five or six million dollars every right. winter on the chance that he won't blow out his arm again, and then he blows out his arm again. <laughs> and like, uh, if you're gonna throw you know four or five million bucks at Josh Johnson, you should throw four or five million bucks at Rich Hill. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, uh, sorry, Eddie Gabriel. Uh, first yeah. of all. Um, Our apologies, Eddie. And uh, also, I will say thank you, Dave Cameron. You fulfilled your obligation. Hooray for us. Yeah, that has been uh, Dave Cameron, Managing Editor of Fangraphs.com. I'm Carson Stooley. It's been Fangraphs Audio.